Do you regret missing Cowan's Big Rig Bootcamp in 2021? Then Trial Guides is here to save the day. Michael Cowan is officially a part of the Trial Guides family, and you can now purchase his on-demand CLE through Trial Guides. Visit trialguides.com, click on the Shop tab, and select CLE to enjoy this professionally taped seminar at your convenience. And see for yourself why Cowan's Big Rig Bootcamp continues to grow year after year. And if you haven't RSVP'd for our seminar in 2022, visit BigRigBootCamp.com and secure your spot for our June 17th, 2022 CLE, the last free Big Rig Bootcamp. And now, enjoy the show. This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today is episode 100 of Trial Lawyer Nation. I am so excited. Uh, This is a milestone, and so I wanted it to be very special. And David Ball, and if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, you know who David Ball is, has agreed to come on because I wanted a special guest for a special episode. David, thank you so much for coming on. It is my pleasure, and I'm excited that it's your 100th one. That's, uh, I want to shake the hand of any person who can keep these going for 100 episodes. Well, the, the secret is having a, a good team that ma- that makes you record when you forget and get busy doing other things. Uh, so. Well, the secret is also you, you had quite a run of good people and, uh, you know, how to talk with them. Yeah, and, and you were nice enough to be in one of the earlier episodes, and uh, I, you've done so much for not just me, but for the entire uh, plaintiff and criminal defense bar. And uh, you got a new book coming out, and I wanted to uh, talk to you about some of the new things you've learned and the new stuff that's coming out, if that's all right. Sure. So your new book is Damages Evolving. Uh, you've written it along with Artemis, uh, Malakpour, your partner, and Nick and Courtney Rowley. Available from Trial Guides. I think it's coming out April 15th, but it's you can pre-order. I've already pre-ordered it. Uh, it's already up to pre-order today at trialguides.com. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be available earlier than that. They just give you a late date so people don't start yelling at them. <laughs> But But apparently there are things like delivery problems for paper to print the book on and things like that. So everything is behind a little bit, but uh, it'll be out pretty soon. Great. And it's called Damages Evolving. Right. Uh, So what do you mean by Damages Evolving? Well, it was originally kind of called Damages the Evolution, meaning, you know, here's the next thing and what we've learned. And this is... We started this before COVID, and I work very quickly when I'm writing to at least get out of my, all my first draft stuff. And so I was pretty much through a first draft by the time COVID shut everything down and changed everything. It was an enormous change in our society. 
in our culture and everything. And that was a change on top of the slightly earlier change of what happened in, in Washington. Uh, a couple of major changes going on there. And then soon after that was the uh, police knee on the neck of the man in, in, in uh, Minnesota. And with each one of those things, something radical was shifting within the American public. And we realized we can't say this is where it is because by the time the book comes out, there may be two or three or four more other changes and they did. So what we've done instead is come up to the most uh, advanced new stuff, but also at least have some explanation of what do you do with these things as we get into new new times, new new shifts in, in the population, therefore in the jury population. It makes a big difference to decision-making. And at first people say, oh my God, what are we going to do with COVID? And they're doing this on about day three. It was like after 9-11, where people were saying, oh my God, here's what you do. And all these authorities are coming out and saying, here's what you do. And it turned out 9-11 had virtually no effect on most juries. So you can be very premature on these things. Um, so this is really a not only get you up to where we are, which is what most of us write about all the time, but how do we prepare you so that when you're, you've done all your work and you learn how to do all these things and all of everybody else's things, suddenly one of these things happens, and right when they happen uh, is when people are the rawest to them, they can make the greatest difference to your case. What do you look at? What are the? It's very simple. It doesn't take up a huge chunk of the book. It's you know sort of in many of the chapters. Here's what to look for as as things change, or this one ain't going to change unless the human brain changes. So we decided damages evolving was a better image of taking us into the future, so that the book would be. I never thought damages three would be around for a dozen years, but it has been. Which is also part of the reason that, and I'll anticipate your next question, I bet, why uh, this one involved the rallies. Yeah, that was that was a surprise when I first saw it because the, you know, uh, most people, including me, would have put you guys kind of in different schools of uh, methods for trial advocacy. Well, not fundamentally. Um, Externally, maybe, the, the, the external shape of it. But Artemis and I heard about Nick a few years ago. And I remember saying, remember she and I talking about, how does he do this? Yeah. I can understand how most attorneys, whether they were using stuff out of damages three or something else, but I could see, you know, we're, but Nick is getting this string of, like something you see in a movie in terms of the size of the verdict consistently and not just in one area of the country. And so we started paying attention and a lot of attention and we got to know each other and then better and better. Basically, we do the same thing. Um, how we get there is not always the same. So one of the very early things in the book is a kind of disclaimer don't expect everybody to agree with everything here. Uh, that ain't going to happen. There is no one way. I had come out of a, of a long period of my career thinking, well, if, 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 if this is coming from me, it's bound from Mount Sinai, and that's the way. And aside from that being an arrogant approach, 
it's also just not true. There is no one way. Uh, and the only judge of what is any good is whoever has to go into the trenches and use it. And so if something of yours or something of whoever is, I mean, look at, look at just the trial guide shelf. Yeah. The number of different really good, when I first wrote the first edition of Damages, those people, didn't, there wasn't anything else. It wasn't that, oh, somebody's, there's a great book out there. It was, there's a book out there, practically. There was, there was not much else to, to look at. Um, and so the CLEs were kind of recycling themselves for years. So when I wrote that first thing, there was absolutely nothing on damages and very little else. Some, some things, no, Eric Oliver and a few other people have been putting out some good stuff. But now, and I like to think people in Eric, like Eric and I and a few others, sort of showed publishers that, yes, you can sell these books and, and, and returns a reason to continue in business. <laughs> uh, so that now there's, there's uh, again, just look at the trial guide shelf. It's an amazing shelf of books. Uh, outside of trial guides, uh, AAJ has got great books. Uh, James Publishers, all the different publishers have now got what I consider important books that had they come out 25 years ago, would have been uh, uh, landmarks. I want people to know all that stuff so they can draw from all of it. And so it seemed ideal. And Nick and I, uh, Artemis and I had this problem about what do we do with Damages 3? Because it's we can't stop it. We don't want to take it off the market because 90% of it is still in effect. It's not like it got outdated. Maybe 10 or 15% of it needed some revision. And then we had a bunch of new stuff. And so I, I didn't want to do a damages four because that takes damages three off the market. Uh, and then it, 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 Nick came up with the idea of why don't we do something together? And I thought, well, hell, get one of the best people in the trenches. And you know, I, I had Artemis, which is one of the best minds on the consulting side of the business. Uh, and Courtney, who I stopped saying uh, Courtney is Nick's wife and started saying Nick is Courtney's husband. That's how much I think of her. Um, yeah. And they're an amazing team and articulate about what they do. So they teach it well. And I learned probably more from Nick, not just about trial advocacy, but about myself than, than I think I've ever learned from any one person. Maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration. There are, there are a few others in my life with that kind of influence. So it just seemed ideal. And the only person who had really difficulty with the book was the editor putting four different things <laughs> together in one set of covers. Um, but Trial Guys has a wonderful, wonderful editor, and she managed to, and all their people have done a superb job on this thing. And uh, so they, they all managed to put up with the four of us. Was, was Tina Ricks your editor? Oh, yes. Tina Ricks. And she's wonderful. I mean, the woman's got more patience than, you know, who knows. Um, yeah. But she also knows what she's doing. Uh, if she says something, it's not that you accept every single thing she does, says, but you seriously consider it. And you better have a really good reason not to, or you yourself go to bed uneasy that night. So, yeah, I'm sure anybody who's had the experience of working with her and with their other people. Frustrating. So what are some of the things that, you know, you and Artemis do a ton of research. I mean, Artemis is out there doing focus groups all the time. 
what are some of the things that you've seen, you know, with the combination of the changes in society and what you're seeing in, in your jury research that use that led to the need to evolve strategies uh, on damages? Well, part of it, of course, is just as you think about stuff and watch it in action over the years. So I saw that the beginning of the opening uh, template that's in Damages 3 worked pretty well. And as time went on and I was watching them and, and we were using them, doing more and more research on it, I began to realize exactly what it was about it that was working well. And that allowed me to refine it into this thing uh, that we call alignment. And it's sort of the same, except now it goes right to the heart of things and it takes advantage. To, and Artemis and I have been doing some work, uh, a lot of work with neuroscience research. We're, we're doing a, a, a National Science Foundation project, or I've been doing it, I guess it's finally coming to a head um, at Duke University with their, I think they call it their Duke Institute for Brain Science, DIBS, or something like that. Anyway. Uh, a friend of ours there who is a, both a scientist and, a, and a, an attorney, uh, and his colleagues there got a grant to do this project into juror decision-making. And so we started to see more and more and more about, not just from that project, but in general, what have the neuroscientists learned about how the human brain makes decisions. And it's very different from what the 20th century psychologists thought. In fact, most of that stuff has now been shown to have been not just speculative, but wrong speculative with all due respect. And it's, it's radically changed some things. And that helped reframe that beginning of um, uh, the opening so that it was, if you get that alignment in place, you start winning in the first two or three pages of your opening. And, you, and it gives you a definite foundation to build everything else in the case on. So long after the jurists have forgotten exactly how you started your opening, that's still controlling how they think. And I want to talk about that concept of alignment. I mean, you introduced me to that a couple of years ago when we were working on a case together. And it really helped the way uh, we worked up the case. And uh, the defense didn't let us uh, do an opening in that case, unfortunately. You know, Fortunately and unfortunately, good for my client because they. Uh, oh, I kind of didn't let you. We, we we stopped negotiating and they just gave up and paid our number. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons people use the alignment thing uh, in their uh, negotiations with the other side. It can put the defendant in a near hopeless situation. Absolutely. So, can you tell us what is the concept of alignment and how does it work? What we know, we've thought this for a long time. Uh, if you followed. Greg Cusimano and David Weiner's early work, they certainly had this concept embedded in, in, in their work on bias. And I've known it from my work in theater where the impressions you give an audience at a certain point control things for the entire rest of the play. And then along come the neurosciences showing that this is not just, you know, more 20th century speculation. This is, this is really what's going on in the, under that skull or in that skull. What alignment does, and it's very simple how to do it, <laughs> explaining why it works is much more complicated, but what it does is it gets the jurors to start believing something important about your case. doesn't have to be the most important thing. It doesn't even need to be the central thing. Just so they start, because the old advice, primacy means people remember the first thing they say, and that's simply false. What is true 
is that people tend to continue to believe what they start to believe. The first thing you believe about a new situation, you tend, it's a very tiny tendency. But if the next thing they hear reinforces that initial tiny little baby belief, that baby belief gets a little bit bigger. And so now the phenomenon happens stronger with the third thing. So that by the time you're far enough into your opening, and as this, this all gets done and open, the alignment is maybe anywhere from three to five minutes long, depending on the case. In some cases, it's, it's two minutes. But by the time you, for example, if you start with alignment and you get this little belief that, yes, the taxi company uh, really didn't put the right tires on their cars and should have replaced the tires earlier, and, and they believe that now. That, that's taken because you show them. On such and such a day, this happens, this happens, this happens. Each one of them illustrates one of those, if you can get all those in, even if not, even if it's always the event in the case itself. The jurors start to accept that. They have no reason not to, and they do, if you're careful how you do it. So then the next thing, the next section you come to, at least in the open way we do it, somebody else may do it differently, this will still work. But in, in our next section usually is who we're suing and why. So you take that, again, very sequenced, a step at a time, and since they're slightly more likely to believe it, because they already have a little belief in your favor, that gives you a foot up with the next one. And that continues until by the time of opening, you get to undermining the opposition and undermining the thoughts that the jurors are going to bring in on their own. You're almost impervious to those things. So now you can say, here's what's wrong with those concepts. You'll see this, you'll see that. Don't say those words and we don't advise that, but that's what you're doing in yeah. the underwriting. Um, and then when you get to damages at the end, you've got a jury that's yours. And now the poor defense attorney has got to get up and put on his or her case. And any damage they do, you've got the first witnesses to take care of. It's a, it's a lovely little system. The only thing I'm ashamed of is that it took me you know, 25 years in this business to finally figure out how do we get jurors so oriented toward our side that every new thing they hear will be that phenomenon that fulfills uh, the bias that says, whatever I hear about something I pretty strongly believe, I will twist grotesquely one way or the other or make myself believe or use to reaffirm or strengthen my existing belief. And... I'm not sure that 25 years ago, anybody would have been secure enough for that whole concept of how the brain works. Now, there's no question about it. And God, we see it illustrated every day on the news. Trump can do no wrong. Anti-Trump people say Trump can do no right. And it doesn't make any difference what it is. So that Trump could have done something exactly that Obama did, uh, or vice versa, and their attitude toward it would be totally controlled. Uh, I mean, your, everybody's attitude is totally controlled by what your initial belief is. And then you determine, well, my initial belief is that Trump is X. And therefore, if I believe Trump is X, I look at that thing that he did in that light. And it's, it's, it's fundamental, and it's a fundamental defense mechanism. And there's no question about the fact that it works. So that's what alignment is about. How do we take advantage of something that I don't need to explain all that stuff to an attorney. Uh, I could just say, here's a nice way to open, and, and here's why, because they'll believe your case right here. 
Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. Now, I'm not sure I understand this right. The way I thought I understood and what and the goal of what I've been trying to do in my opening is that you want the juror, by the t- before you tell the juror that we're suing this person or this company for this reason, the who we're suing and why, you want them to have already made their own conclusion that the defendant did something wrong. I don't ever want them to have to rely on an attorney's conclusion because they don't. Let me give you a brief example. Tiny little example. Drivers are not allowed to follow too close. If they do and they hurt somebody, they're responsible for the harm. A, tr- a Schneider Brothers truck is coming south on Highway 85. It passes the first two exits in Fayetteville. Approaching the third exit, it comes up a long hill, and about two-thirds of the way up the hill, it runs into the back of the school bus. Every little juror's mind is going to say, oh, he was following too close. I didn't tell them that. I didn't say the truck driver did anything wrong. I gave them no attorney's conclusion, because there's probably no worse way to get a juror to agree with you than to tell them what to think. Try that with your teenager. In that sense, the jury's <laughs> um, So now, yeah, okay. I've now broken through any preconceptions of attorneys because they now, I've aligned them with me to a very small extent. And now I'm going to say, okay, let me tell you who we're suing and why, or whatever you're going to do next. I'm just illustrating with this. The first reason we're suing Schneider Brothers Truck Company is. They violated the requirement to train their drivers to follow the rules of the road for making this up on the company. Right. And then why is that important? And uh, how do the violation of that rule cause the problem in this case? And with each one of those points, the jurors are with me. They don't have any opposite thoughts coming into their head. Of course, they're agreeing with it. And I'm not just making this up out of theory. This was tested for a long time. Yeah. And then what should they have done instead? And then how would that have helped? And you do that for each reason you're suing them. Now when you're done with that, they're so far moved one increment at a time towards thinking your way. I can now say one of the things we've been undermining the jury, one of the things we needed to look at was this. And then I'll fill that blank in with something the defense is going to contend or something we know jurors may bring in on their own. So it'll be something like one of the things we needed to look at is, was there ice on the road that day? Because if there had been ice, then it might be the ice that was to blame and not the fact that the trucker was following too close. The Schneider Brothers truck was tracking too close. So in three or four sentences, I can dismiss that in a way that I couldn't before, but I can do it now called the Weather Bureau, ask this, that, and the other person, and you'll hear them say such and such a thing. And the jurors will buy that because they already believe everything else about it. 
Right. As they run through everything that could undermine the case. And now the jurors essentially have stipulated liability. And now you say, let me talk about what this is meant for John's life or whatever. And now you go into your damages, you know, with a, with a friendly jury. In fact, with a jury that's afraid of the kind of thing the defendant did. That hasn't thought about your defendant at all, your client, your client at all. All of their thought has been on what finally becomes them. That why didn't that damn company just train its drivers or whatever the hell it did or the, whoever the defendant is? But that's the principle. And again, in the explaining, it sounds very heady and and, and all that stuff. In the actuality of it, is the most down to earth way I know uh, of providing a template that people can use to get really get the thing working. The purpose of an opening is to show the jurors uh, what they're going to see in trial, to orient them. Well, you're orienting them to, to, to them what's going to be in trial perfectly. You're covering everything. And then with the advice of Eric Oliver, uh, which is brilliant advice, and it always is, you try to sequence your witnesses so they reflect the sequence of your opening when you can and uh, that's been a little easier now because we know how to make video depositions just about as interesting and listenable and memorable as live witnesses. So I uh, couldn't do that we very briefly using subtitles, but that needs more explanation than that. So it, it, this kind of thing just, it arms you in a way that it's done with respect to the jury, not about law, not about you, not about the judge. It is totally. We are here for the jury. Every every step we take is we've examined carefully through their eyes. And what I try to do is reduce that kind of thing to templates that a busy lawyer can can actually follow and organize his case around. Yeah, and the thing I love about your templates is that it 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 makes not only does it go with the science and the research, but it just it keeps our stories understandable because you know, we, we suffer from the curse of knowledge. We've worked on a case for two or three years and we just we forget what people don't know. And then we want to over explain and we want to over explain too early. And I've seen lawyers, they get too defensive. They start talking off. They start, you know, trying to undermine before they, they've aligned and, and got the jury to buy in on the. Thank um, God. This is this is why uh, this is why I have a job. Yeah. <laughs> I, I started life as an engineer. Really? I learned that what engineers do is they take the science and they translate it into stuff people can use. That's really an engineer, and that's the difference between a scientist and an engineer. So it's not that I think I'm engineering as a trial consultant, but I'm, I'm serving the same kind of function. What I lack is the ability to get up and do it the way you folks do it, because I don't have the temperament. I would tell the judge off. Uh, I would I would throw things with every sustained objection against me. I, I my social skills are down around zero, and my skills in front of authority are even lower. And I'm not kidding. I'm just that's not my strong point in life. So I admire the hell out of folks who can do that job and meet another one of my total limitations, which is on your feet juggling several different things at once that may not even have anything to do with each other. I'm furious with what the judge just did, and now I got to cross-examine this eight-year-old girl. Now, how do I do that without falling down and do the eight-year-old girl the way you have to cross-examine a child? I know how to do that. I know how to teach you how to do it, 
but you put me in that position and I'd be using the child to make my damn points against the judge. So. Yeah. Well, one thing I have found that really helps, and it doesn't mean that what I'm saying is true, but it's a mindset trick that has helped me retain my demeanor in trial. And that is, I have a mantra. The jurors are taking time out of their lives because they want to do the right thing. And so I'm going to trust them to do the right thing. The judge wants to follow the law and do the right thing. I may or may not agree with it, but the judge thinks that he or she is doing the right thing. So I'm going to trust the judge and respect his or her decisions. And then I'm going to have fun while I'm here. So when you have that ruling you don't like, you just tell yourself, well, the judge is doing what she thinks is right. I guess got to live with it. And you go on and you just kind of let it flow through you because the getting mad is not productive. You can do that after the trial, but when you're there, it just, it, it takes, it puts, it separates you from the jurors. Well, it also should not have anything to do with who you are. I don't know if you've had a chance to read Rick Friedman's great new book, The Way of the Trial Lawyer, uh, Beyond Technique. It does talk about the ethos of who you are. So when I first heard of it, I said, oh, crap, a self-help book. <laughs> uh, it's an amazing book, a really amazing book. And it has to do what you just said with that. If that's not about, if I'm here because of my ego, I'm going to get mad at the judge. If I'm here because I'm insecure, I'm going to get mad at the or whatever is distracting me. Something bad to say. No, none of those things have to do with the who I am of why I'm in trial. And the other thing that's, that is covered in damages evolving is what I think is a growing awareness of the importance of empathy, which is a very tricky word. It means to see things through another's eyes and to partly share what they are feeling in their given situation, which lubricates the wheels. So that when somebody does something like that, whether it's a defense attorney or a juror that I don't like in a voir dire, or whatever it is, that I'm not assuming their universe is mine. In fact, I know some judges who are from different universes, but that's a different part. But rather I'm assuming there, there are differences in how they're seeing the world, what is driving them, understanding the pressures a defense attorney has to stay in business that come from those pressures that come from the insurance companies makes it a lot easier for me to deal with that person rather than my just thinking that person is a, a jackass. Right. There, but for the grace of God, might go me, but that's why I don't work that side of the fence. But you can have that kind of empathy without identifying with the person, without agreeing with the person, but it it creates an ability to get much more out of your own client, especially ones you're having trouble with. Same with witnesses, and it skyrockets your ability to work with jurors. You come in every day before trial starts, and you look at each seat. Lawyers will sit in each seat in the jury box. Remembering who's there, glancing at their notes from Bordier, to try to re-see the world of the trial up to that point through that juror's eyes. And once you can do that, you've created that bond. It's one of the reasons actors love live theater much better than film, because there is something of that bond in live theater. Well, here, you've got it even bigger than that because you know exactly who they are. And that is a that means you start making great decisions that you're not even thinking about, because your mindset has to do with those jurors, specifically not a jury, but with the right. juror, that juror, that juror. And again, it sounds heavy, it sounds vague, it sounds a little mushy, it's actually very easy, very practical. 
And people automatically do much better when that's there. I don't mean sentimentality. I don't mean sympathy. I don't mean dripping, gooey, you know, let's sing Kumbaya. I don't mean that at all. Yeah. I mean an understanding of where others are coming from. Just the way every great marketer, every great political consultant, of which there are two, uh, and I can only name one, <laughs> uh, that's, that's the great persuaders. I mean, it's hard to think of some of the most evil people in history having great empathy, but they do, because they know exactly what their audience is thinking. We've had a recent, recent uh, example of a person that many of us do not admire, yet in that regard, he was better than anybody else around, because he empathized on that level, not the sympathy one, but the or feeling kindly one or any of that, but he empathized on that level with who his people are, what their lives were, what they needed to hear to get them on your side. And using language that, that was their language. Yeah, without condescending. And knowing which part of you you wanted to, which parts of you to allow them to see. Because, okay, here, you know, whatever your life is, it's not the same as most people on the jury. It is the most down, we really down to earth, I suppose, but down to earth in Iowa and down to earth in Greenwich, Connecticut are two different things. So you really do need to know your audience. And the, the, the damage is evolution has a lot of that, a lot of it from Nick and Raleigh, Nick and uh, uh, Courtney. But again, it's coming out of somebody in the trenches who knows, who shows you how to do it. And that's one of the lovely things about that part of the book. This is not from the book, and I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on this. You know, Nick and Courtney, as a trial team, have had incredible results. I've noticed that I've done much better when I have a female lawyer trying the case with me as an equal. Is there something there to that? Yeah. Uh, years ago, a very good friend of mine, who was, I think about what he was, I think, the first attorney to ever hire me, uh, a, an absolute genius in Kentucky. I don't know if you know Gary Johnson or not. I know who he is. He's an incredible lawyer. He is. He's magnificent. And, and I, learned, I mean, he would bring me in and, and he wouldn't let me behold when the case was over. And uh, uh, we ended up in some parts of Kentucky that all I wanted to do was go home. Uh, but, but there I was. Uh, um, um, and, and all he wanted from me was little notes of what to do next throughout the day. And he had the judgment to know when I was full of crap or when he really needed to do this. Anyway, he told me early on, uh, boy, what wisdom was in it, especially when he said that. Remember that awful lawyer's joke about what do you call 100 lawyers at the bottom of the ocean? And the answer was, I forget, not enough. Or a good starter, yeah. And, and he said, okay, now, picture in your mind what are those lawyers wearing? And they're all wearing business suits because they're all men. The bias against plaintiff's lawyers is far stronger, almost all, against the men. It's hardly there with the women. They bring it. And air simply because they weren't there when court reform was attacking them like that. There weren't that many women yet in the courtroom. So now they carry a sense of credibility with them. And also my other understanding about all this is that uh, most people grew up being aware that dad would have to lie now and again. <laughs> kind of work back. Mom, why? So that we have this great, you want, you want to win a case? have a woman with you who's eight and a half months pregnant. That's the most credible part. Yeah, I, I think there's something to that, and I hate to say that. Uh, I tried a case against a woman that was eight and a half months pregnant, and it, it wasn't, 
we got a verdict, but there was a little bitty V in that verdict. It was not uh, something that went up on the website. <laughs> I watched a prosecutor uh, here in Durham years ago learned this lesson that she met. She'd been an okay prosecutor, did occasional flashes of incredibly good work, <clears throat> but never as effective as when she was probably had her husband waiting at the courthouse door with a car warmed up ready to go. It's it's yeah, but even without being pregnant, and, and I don't want all the women lawyers to run out and get one of those fake pregnancy people. <laughs> um, I think that's part of the reason. The other part of the reason is it gives you a point of view on the case with, with almost all the women I know. That will be different. I mean, the amount that I have learned from Artemis over the years is not just because of Artemis's intellect and ability to understand this whole business and how people operate in it, which is pretty formidable in itself, but she's seeing it from a different world. Women do not grow up in the same world situation that men do. They simply don't, regardless of how you feel about women's rights and all that stuff. You can't make the argument that but we both grow up in the same world. We don't, because we don't have the same forces working against us. And that provides everything in the case, probably most importantly you, with an insight, assuming you leave the doors open for communication from that person. Um, I used to fight with people because they would ignore their female paralegals in trial. You know, I'd, I'd write a note to the attorney I was sitting next to, and the paralegal would have written the same note five minutes earlier, and the attorney didn't bother to look at that one. But mine, he's paying me for it, looks at it, and he doesn't. I've sat in endless meetings where the men will daughter around about a solution to something we're brainstorming, and the woman will say something, and that's when they check their cell phones. They still have that. They still do that today. They check their email. There's something rich in that other point of view. And to make the argument that the the old stupid arguments about women shouldn't do this, that's pure crap. But what I'm saying is not just a matter of equality, but in two different things, there's a great strength. Laminated wood is indeed stronger than a solid piece of wood every time. Um, That's an old engineering principle, Um, but it's true. Yeah, so I, I think there's something to that. Yeah, I think so. But you have to have an equal. I mean, if you have someone, you know, carrying your briefcase or passing you notes who doesn't, you don't treat right or doesn't get to talk to the jury or examine witnesses, I think that it can backfire. Very much so, because there's women watching you. Yeah. And some of those women have been treated like that and they didn't like it and they won't don't like the people who do it. Yep. Uh, and it doesn't take many people when you're on the plaintiff's side to ruin your case. Yeah, never cast yourself as a villain accidentally, by the way. You treat the people on your own team. I mean, there's just no reason to do that. <laughs> and the, 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 instead of it's just being don't do that because it can hurt you, is don't do that can hurt you. But if you do the opposite, it can help you actually far more than it usually will hurt you. And it's also the right thing to do on top of, <laughs> on top of that. Yeah, but I'm not a great fan of sacrificing anything to your client. That I agree. The welfare of your clients outstrips any of that. That's what all this is about. Uh, that's why I mean, for clients, this is the only resource they've got in the world. So, no, I don't think we need to make – I think by our nature of doing plaintiff cases, we are serving a social purpose on a bunch of fronts. But to say that that's why we do it, other than to help make things safer, well, the primary thing is somebody hired you to do a job, and you better do the best possible job for them. They don't want to hear about social causes. So, yes, it's the right thing to do. That's fine. But that's not why I push people to do it. I have another question. And this is off the book. And I just would like to get your advice on this. And so, you know, I'm 
uh, one of the things I'm getting to do, and, and it's a blessing, is I'm getting to work with lawyers who are developing and finding their own genius uh, in my firm. And I struggle because you want them to do more in trial, but at the same time, I've read and I've also found that if the same person does voir dire opening and closing, that you create a relationship with that jury that may not be the same as if you split them. What are your thoughts on that? Because I want to get people the experience of doing it, but they, but I still have something to offer too and don't want to, and also it's fun and I don't want to give up all that stuff. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? When you can do this, I think one of the things to do is start finding cases for them to do, even if they're pro bono cases. I mean, if you're training people, which is good for you in the long run, one of the ways you get them experience is giving them cases that aren't that bloody hard or complicated to do to get them to stand up in front of a room experience. Also, another approach is to divide the... I've seen really good lawyers do what you're talking about badly, where they'll put a person into a position they're really not quite prepared to be in yet. But what you can do, you can frame a case with consortium in a way that the consortium claim is not hard to do. That means you yourself have really got to know how to do a consortium claim. It's not just a little appendix, appendix that waves around it. It's, um, I've known lawyers who will, I'll do the liability, you do the damages. That's a pretty big division of responsibility. Gets it in. But to get more specific, you handle the science here. You deal with these, whatever it is. Uh, every plaintiff's case, I believe, inter injury case or death, wrongful death case, should have five or ten fact witnesses who are not members of the family, who are not close friends, to talk about what this person is like now and, and have some others talk about what they were like before or one witness can do it. But you want five or ten of those people, ten or fifteen minutes each, very powerful, describing damages three and other places. That's a unit which has to do with getting people on the stand who probably won't even be cross-examined. I don't know what's an attorney to defend cross-examine those people. And all you're doing is eliciting from them on the stand uh, little anecdotes that illustrate mom's always tired now or you can't do this anymore. That what the change is, it was not abstract. That's a little unit you could give those people at first. And then step by step, you expand their number of units. I'm not necessarily a great adherent to the same attorney needs to do voir dire opening and closing. I like it to keep, usually, to keep voir dire and opening in the same hands because I think they're really part of the same movement. But by the time you get to closing, they have heard from so many different people. If, if you can, you may put that decision off until you get the closing because you may have developed a really good relationship with the jurors. Or your colleague, younger, you know, less experienced than you or not, it may just turn out that when you can feel that when they get up, the jurors take to them more. That's the person yeah. who's closing. The, the basic rule is whoever the best person is for the job, they should do it. What you're trying to do here is make an exception to that. But if you if you think of how can I use them in a way where it's at their skill level, et cetera, and then give them on their feet in court clothing, preferably in a courtroom, practice doing the damn thing. Bring in, you know, hire some kids to come in and be witnesses. Hire some actors from a local college for 50 bucks, whatever. So they can actually, because half the reason younger or less experienced attorneys don't do all that well at first is they're scared to death. And a lot of that is, shit, I'm suddenly in a real courtroom. <laughs> 
It's like taking a kid from a little league and putting him on the mound in a World Series game. It really is. Well, how do you get them there? Well, we call it practice and we call it rehearsal in the theater. So that the first time actor up against, you know, the old star is perfectly comfortable. That's another way to help. But I applaud your effort to try to make them better. Yeah. So there are some public defender's offices that take that very seriously. They've got some wonderful attorneys uh, simply because they know they better make these people better if they're going to be able to do their job. Do you think it's ever okay to to split an opening statement and have one lawyer do the... Yeah, the judge will let you. There can be times where that's very useful. Okay, you've heard all you've heard from me. You've heard from person A. All the reasons about what went wrong here, why why we're here, uh, what this person did wrong, uh, what they should have done instead, and we dealt with all the things that are, you know, wrong with the other side's case. Now let's get to the important stuff. And so for that, B gets up. That's one way to do that. The most opportune time for creating rapport is obviously for dear because it's a two-way thing. However, once you've learned how to deal with a group of people you're talking to, everything you do in front of that group is a two-way thing. Cross-examination of a hostile witness is a two-way thing between you and the jury, and you need to learn how to do that. Otherwise, instead of bringing the jurors into the show, you are putting on a show for them to watch, which means they're not in your control, which means they're not your ally, which means they're not the group you want. Um, there are a lot of things like that you can learn to fix that sort of thing. Can you give some examples of how you include the jury in your cross-examination of a hostile witness? The witness is over there, the cross-examination. And so I'll say, Doctor, you were there, weren't you? And I'll simply turn to the jury so we can share. And after an answer, you know, the, the time you get the greatest information is when you shut up after they've answered because they'll jump in and fill the gap. But when they finished answering a significant question or a difficult question, I'll, I might turn to the jury and just, I will think in their direction. Possibly not fix on a single juror the whole time, make somebody nervous, but you bring them in. That's just one example. Yeah. If, you, if you've ever had the chance to work with Joshua Carton, uh, he's got all sorts of ways to teach you how to make that jury part of every step you take. But just simply plain looking at them and sharing reactions without trying to sell anything by the look on your face. Just give them the feeling. Uh, one piece of advice I used to give, I haven't done it in a while, I guess, because um, Artemis has been going all the trials. Uh, but one, one piece of advice that I used to give is um, I finished a question, I finished a little unit of questioning, and I look at the jury to give us all time to think, but I'm looking at them. As if I'm asking them, what should I ask next? Hmm. What would you like to hear next? And then at a certain point, okay, I've got that. Let me ask them that. And that works. It really works. They feel like that. And also, if I spend the whole trial in this orientation to you, I never become one with you. They never really get me they get me at work when i spend a lot of the time oriented in their direction with them not just opening and closing and even an opening and closing consider it a dialogue it's not just you giving them a bunch of conclusions it's you 
working with them to arrive at a mutual understanding. There's all kinds of things like that you can do to get that jury aligned with you. Part of the, the hopefully in jury selection, you, you can partly end up making a group, a unit, an organism out of this jury. Now, how do I bring them to me? One way is to be Jerry Spence, uh, or Nick Rowley for that fact, because that happens almost all by itself. Some people have that gift. Other ways is to learn, and somebody like Joshua can, Joshua Carton teaches that with some brilliant exercises that finally makes people see, oh, these people are in the case with me. For me, it took a lot of working with, with Josh and with Sari de Lamont and practice and practice and practice and read and changing my mindset and giving over my own securities. It was, it's not natural to me. And maybe it was natural to Nick and Jerry, but I think they're rare birds. Most of us have to work hard at it. Yes, I don't think it was natural even with them. I think it <laughs> may be easier for some people to learn, and ultimately some people are better at it than other people, but it's counter to the normal personality it takes to even decide to go to law school, much less <laughs> go into trial law. But it's also unnatural to learn the law. That's hard, too. I mean, I, I, when I had passed the bar exam, I would have understood every bit of law school, every moment of it, but ask me the next dance, you know, like, yeah. um, except I did read thoroughly more than once the restatements of torts because that becomes an awfully useful thing about the linguistics or what you can do with the linguistics regarding the law. It's a different story. But it is learnable. And to not learn to do it well, and not just well, but the best that you can do. And it's one of the things that takes, that is the equalizer between attorneys who come out with great charisma and brilliance and natural talent and those who don't. The ones who don't will probably be better later in their careers if they have been learning the whole time than just relying on those natural gifts they have. And I see this all the time. The legendary attorney and their less experienced, not even as smart colleague because some people aren't smart enough to always hire people smarter than them. And it's the colleague who's doing the brilliant work, because the colleague has had to learn how to do the brilliant work. The talented, automatically talented one hasn't progressed one day. You, you can count, you see all over the country, lawyers who did really, really well early in their careers, they got famous, everybody knows them, they're in all the right groups and organizations that honor those people. They're not the ones bringing in the verdicts. They're not the very, some of them are, sure, but a lot of them, they're mired because they never had to do that work. It's like the pretty baby in the cradle never had to work to get people's attention. <laughs> it's the ugly ones who had to work to get people's attention, so we know how to get attention. The pretty baby has no idea. I want to kind of shift back to what we talked about talking about. I know I've been, I've got on some tangents, but I just, when I hear something interesting, I want to pick your brain on it uh, now that I have you here. Forgotten damages is, is I, I just looked at the at the table of contents because that's at least available on the trial guide website. And one of the things of the book is forgotten damages. What is for what are forgotten damages? Not by the attorney, forgotten by people in general. Things we things that are always almost always left out. I'll give you one example. The book has got a ton of these. They're all compensable, or they're not there. I mean, some places might allow one thing and not allow another, but. Most of them are available every place. If someone is in great pain, 
If that's your principal thing, they're going to be in this horrible pain for the rest of their lives. And you don't look for the forgotten part of what the damages of pain are. I'm not talking about its consequences of disability or other things. Can't hold your grandchild anymore. What the hell else is there? And if you're staying up with what scientists are learning, if you have great pain, you will have trouble sleeping. You may fall asleep, but it'll be a lousy quality of sleep. Probably you can't fall asleep in some situations where the pain is. So what do you do? You have to take medications to help you sleep, which is a crappy level of sleep. You're not getting the kind of sleep your brain required. And so what happens in the long, actually even in the midterm, much less the long run, you will be more susceptible to severe physical diseases. You will... The odds that any one of these, I shouldn't say you will, that any one of these will come to pass is 20, 30, 40%. Well, the odds of one of the, of some one of these, of some serious consequence, goes way beyond the preponderance. Uh, so you can always get this stuff in. And certainly your client's concern about it is way beyond preponderance. So the client's concern about it, to know that somebody with any kind of malady in the future, something that seems totally unrelated, the lack of sleep thing, eventually causing senility 20 years early. Uh, somebody who's not confined in their movements and has to be sedentary most of the time, confined to a wheelchair or whatever. Their chance of cancer goes up by a third. Their chances of uh, heart disease go up by a third. Their chance of, I forget what the other <laughs> really awful thing is, goes up by a third. Uh, we know that being sedentary all the time is bad for you, which is why you've got to get up and move around every hour if you want your body to be okay. Well, put yourself in a position where you can't do that at all, and the consequences become enormous. That's a forgotten damage. And to jurors, it's not just on an equal level. The fact that you're in a wheelchair now is nowhere near as bad as the fact that now you don't know whether you're going to get which one of these things. All you know is... If you don't have the money to take care of yourself, if you get that kind of cancer or whatever it is, your kid ain't going to be able to go to college. Or what are the what are the hard consequences of the family in the beyond preponderance event that one of those things comes to pass? Which is another thing you need to keep up with. What is science learning more and more, literally week by week, about what are the consequences to things like? We're worried about the long term consequences of COVID. They're nowhere near as, as likely as the consequences of being sedentary or getting bad sleep or other, other things like that. So somebody 40 or 50 years old is not going to have the same remainder of life in the same ways for reasons beyond what their injuries are that are the obvious ones. Totally different things, horrors are going to come up, and they either know about them, that creates huge anxiety, there's a financial preparation that has to be there, uh, there's compensation to the more than likely probability one of those things will happen. It opens the door to a whole lot more economic damages, which is important in states where you've got non-economic damage caps. But it also shows the jurors how much worse than anyone ever thought the consequences of what that trucking company did. That can happen to anybody I know, including me. Now you've got an engine working for you just because you've looked at damages that nobody's ever thought of. People always say you can't do brain damage because it's invisible. 
Nobody can see it. How am I supposed to win that kind of case? That should be your strongest possible case, the case with brain damage, um, because it affects every single thing about a human being's life from that on and everyone around them. The good unit in the book, how you can bring all that together. But that all stems out of this forgotten damages. It just means we got to do a little more work to, to, to learn to learn and educate. And it's as if, look if you don't do it, uh, you're you're really not serving your clients, and I would call it negligence because you are ignoring things that you, as an injury attorney, ought to know about. I'm 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 all for doing all the work. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying you have to to think. It's like it's like a, a brain injury case. Is it an invisible damage? Yeah. So you need to go find like you said, those 10 to 15 people to give those 15 minute vignettes who aren't their best friends and family members. Well, as the book points out, the worst harm in the case is the fact that the damage is invisible. Yeah. That's what causes so many of the social problems. That's why those people can't go out of their house anymore, which happens to many of them. The book explains all that. You can't just go hire a paid expert and expect them to do all that for you. You got to go do the work. No, they'll, they'll tell you how it happens and what one can expect. But the impact on your client's life, you ain't going to learn that from reading anything. You need to get to, you know, you need to understand the principles and keep up with the science, which is, like I say, weekly learning major new things about the consequences of current things that happened to us. It's not just avoid poisoning how it affected the kids in school. It's what's it going to do to their brain by the time they're 65? When are they going to start needing outside assistance to get through the activities of daily living? Years earlier. I found the best experts are those that welcome when you share that literature with them so that they can keep learning rather than the ones say, well, I'm the expert. You don't tell me anything, you know. Well, you don't need that stuff. All you need your expert is to talk about, uh, you find out the concept, go on Science Daily or any of the other places that give you digest and do an index search to see what's there. So you learn about basically what they are, rely on the expert to explain how that happened and how common it is. And then it's totally up to you to show how that's affected your, your, your expert can't really go into how it's affected your client's life. So yeah, it's, it's there what that whole area on lost damages does is open up an area at least as big as the one we've already traditionally been using. In most cases, one example, and I'll shut up, Every single case that has an impact to a human being, even if it doesn't touch the human being, even if it's like a whiplash or something, make sure there's no brain damage because there often is. And brain damage can skyrocket your verdict once you know how to do a brain damage case. But brain damage happens much more easily than you think. If somebody falls down, even if they don't hit their head or even if you don't know that they've hit their head, they cannot hit their head hard enough to cause brain damage. That's falling five or six feet from head to floor, much less all the other things that happen to us. Another concept, and it's it's one of the bullet points in your book, and I think that's something I learned from you. A few, I think you explained it to me a few years ago, um, and it really seems to resonate with the more conservative juror uh, that we need to learn to make friends with if they're not always in our social circles. Uh, and that is... You need to start spending half your time out of your own social circles. Well, I live in I live in Texas. Uh, spending time with c- conservatives is not an issue for me personally, right. and then I have family that is I have family members from deep blue to deep red and everything in between. And you know, if you learn to love everybody and 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 listen and not argue, then you can 
learn how to talk to everybody. Or be hateful all the same. That's the other way. <laughs> but one concept that's sent there in the book is loss control equals loss of freedom of choice. Explain that. Uh, it's a huge biggie. I don't give a damn as a juror that your client can't pick their petunias anymore or play golf anymore, do the things they love to do. I really don't care. I understand your argument saying, well, you know, pick the most precious thing to me, and if I couldn't do it anymore, how would I feel? And most people say, well, I'd do something else. They don't understand the loss of a thing like that until they can't do it anymore. And it's a wimpy kind of argument to expect people to make that leap. Some of them do, most don't. But not just conservatives, but particularly conservatives. It's not that she's lost her ability to tend to her damn petunias. It's that she has lost the freedom to choose to do that, whatever it is. They have taken away her freedom. Now, obviously, this is a highly topical issue. If you think about, you know, I'm a free person. I don't have to get a COVID shot or whatever the argument is. So, yes, it's a very... But it's always important to people in our culture because the thing we, one of the things we fear the most is losing our ability to choose what to do. It's one of the things that's scary to young people about growing old. It's one of the things that's scary about any kind of injury, whether it's a teenager saying, I won't be able to go to the prom this year. I don't know if they still have proms, I have no idea. Um, but it's, it is the loss of freedom to be able to, it's the thing we all fight against when we're teenagers. I'm trying not fight, but fight for. I want my freedom to do what I want without my parents telling me what to do. It is our first strong, fundamental, selfish drive. It is very powerful. It splits families. People want their freedom to do what they do. Don't pen me in. That's what it is to be an American, mostly. Uh, and in cultures where that's not true and the immigrants come in, that has totally shifted in America within a couple of generations. So you know, don't tell me who I can marry. Don't tell me I need to do this. Don't tell me I must be that. Imagine getting stronger over the past few decades. So when you couch the disabilities, the things people can't do anymore, you couch them as they've taken away forever his freedom to choose to get up and go to a movie when he wants to. His freedom to go out and dig in the back garden and plant things that he loves. It's not about, I don't give a damn as a chair about whether he plants things or not. I don't identify with that. It doesn't make any difference to me. I kind of think it's weird and silly. Freedom is the channel between the two of us. And in fact, it ultimately explains claustrophobia where you lose the freedom to get out of where you are. That's the ultimate loss of freedom. That's, that's what solitary confinement is. It's like wearing clothing that's too tight. I haven't got the freedom to lift my arm and scratch my head because the armpit is too tight on my shirt. These are all things that we live with all the time, and we do all we can to overcome them. You take that ability away, and you've taken away something really precious. It's, it's what I'm calling a flashpoint. The book is going to list of about 20 flashpoints or so of things you can build your damages case around. I can't wait to get it. And I know we're going a little long, but there's just a couple more things that are so interesting. If you don't mind, I'd like to just take a little extra time and talk about them. Uh, you also talked about science and experts. I mentioned a little earlier a fellow that I've been working with for a number of years now named Pate 
Pate, P-A-T-E, Pate Steen. He's a neuroscientist at Duke, and he studies decision-making. And he thought, well, what better area to look at the practical things like decisions being made, the practicality of that, than in the law, which is all about decisions from beginning to end, especially with juries. So he's a scientist at Duke, natural thing. You go over to the Duke Law School and you get yourself a degree and, and uh, at age whatever, well on, 50, 55, however old he is, I don't know. And so we did that and his trial advocacy teacher put him and me together because we knew we were thinking along the same kinds of lines about a lot of things. And he's the one we're doing the National Science Foundation research with and, and a bunch of other stuff. But he uh, spent a year after law school at the National Judicial Center in D.C., which is a branch of the Justice Department, where he specialized in and still does this kind of work, uh, science in the courtroom, in a way that becomes accessible not just to judges expecting them to read a book about, you know, that thick to understand what to do, it's there and all the information is in there, but you know most judges don't have the time to read all that. And then how are jurors ever going to figure out? How do you frame all this in ways which the jurors can pick up and understand and use, which is, of course, my part of the deal. So the two of us wrote this chapter together. Uh, it's called the reliability test. The first principle of all evidence is that it must be reliable, also relevant. That's the other one. But those are the two Absolutely sine qua non. You don't have evidence unless it's both reliable and relevant or relevant to something material. So what this is, it is a way of showing that the other side is not merely mistaken, which is valuable enough in itself, that they're wrong. But my part of it was to say, how do we frame this to show uh, they are not just mistaken, they are cheating. And they're not just cheating me and my client. They're doing the worst sin you can do. They are cheating the jury. And you want the jurors to see that without you ever making the accusation. So there's simply three things you look at to, to, to decide whether something fills, fulfills Daubert. The article explains it so that jurors can get fourth graders can pick this up. In fact, it's based on a series of fourth grade lessons that are taught in schools. Um, and by the time you're done, you hardly need to question the expert about their opinions. By the way, this is for opinions, not just people coming in to give non-opinion expertise. And so the, the jurors hear these three standards. They are all direct extensions from the law. They all reflect Daubert, Fry, and other uh, science standards. <clears throat> which applies to all expert testimony, not just science. And the jurors understand it's a simple little one, two, three thing. And when they understand it, they themselves begin to see during your questioning whether that person questioning your expert fulfilled those things, therefore this is reliable. Reliable doesn't mean right or wrong. It means you did it right. You got there using the right steps. So... Yeah, our expert did that. So of course, you make sure they do that. And you can count on the fact that an, an expert that an insurance company hired, about a 90% chance they have cheated. And when I first heard that kind of statistic, I thought, I can't believe that. I don't care which institute they're from. I don't care who they are. I don't care about their credentials. They will shade the research because they know the jurors and the lawyers don't understand what they should have done. 
so they can make their research dance and come out and do anything they want because they're cherry-picking the information in ways to go way beyond anything we've dreamed of. So that's what this chapter is about. How can you get the jurors? That's how Peyton, Peyton, my co-writer on that chapter, his intention was just write something that everybody understands what's required of the science to be reliable. I took it the next step, and I made this very clear because Pete didn't want to be on one side or the other of anything. But I took the next step and said, okay, how can we then use this to show the jury that they are cheating? The defense is cheating with these people. Because once they see that, you have raised try the lie to its most useful possible manifestation, which is lying to the jurors. You're never going to use those words. Lying to the jurors. And that, we know, is an enormous damages motivator. So this is why it's in the damages book, even though it's a liability point. Well, it isn't really with, with uh, independent medical examiners. Our so-called biomechanical witnesses. That you can wipe them out in five minutes. So what are the three questions that uh, you use to determine reliability? There are standards. They're, they're, three standards. They're the reliability standards. First, you have to gather all the available information. We've always known that. And factor into your conclusion, your opinion, the effect of the reliability. I'm wording with this much too wordily and complex of the book, makes it simpler. And account for the missing information that you couldn't find that didn't exist in terms of how it affects the reliability of your conclusion, of your opinion. That is requirement one of any kind of science research. Kids understand that in a minute. You got to gather all the information. If you don't have to, you don't have some of the information, you got to tell us. Did you come to the same conclusion? Could it have been? Could it have been a different conclusion if you'd found that? Literally, a ten-year-old, a fifteen-year-old can understand that. That's the first one. Don't try to do this based on what I'm saying here. There's a little more to it to shape it, right? The second is, you must go back and check your work and keep your work and keep your check of your work in writing to see if you made a mistake. Simple as that. People unconsciously make mistakes all the time. People have biases that lead them to make mistakes all the time. Go back and look at it again. The kids know this. In my day, it was add the column of numbers going from top to bottom, and then check your work by going from bottom to top, or check your work by making sure you've got every number in there. Not hard. And the third is, your work needs to be excessive. You need to let us know in enough detail how you did your work for someone else to come along and tell and, and, and attack it and say, here's what's wrong with it. You have to do what's called red team it. Red team people are people at a corporation hire to come in and see what's wrong with its security system who actively try to hack into your, that's the red team. My brother used to do that, yeah. <laughs> it comes from uh, the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages when they were going to sanctify somebody, make them a saint. They bring in what's called the red team to take apart all the arguments to sanctify that person to make sure it was really okay to sanctify them. In other words, you would approach it hostily and see, can I prove it away? Can I show it is not more likely than not that these injuries uh, came from a bad back to start with and actually came from this wreck? And there's a number of other things that are actually easier to do than I just made it sound. But if you look at it, those three questions are very easy. The teacher says, 
gather all the information you need to figure out what should the number be on the bottom here where you've added the model up. And then go back and check your work carefully and make sure in every step you did, you didn't leave something out. And then give it to me so that I can look at it and I'm going to look for mistakes. And if I find mistakes, I'm not going to give you an A, I'm going to give you a C. That's all this really is, which means anyone can understand it. And once jurors understand that, it now becomes a challenge for them to find flaws in what somebody has done. It's like if you teach jurors how to, if you teach attorneys finally how to do criminal cases properly, they get the jurors to start searching for reasonable doubts. So it becomes a, a game, a mystery of, 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 of I don't want to do that. That's fun. I'm going to outdo the other guy in finding the reason. You know, I'm going to do everybody else and find out what's wrong with this. And once they're doing that, the other side's cooked. They're done. It's a very powerful tool. It's in there. And uh, then there's a little section at the very end of the book about, I forget how many pages, not that many, which has the updates that you want to go back. And, and if you use damages three, that you can go back and it's, it's set up so you can actually cut these things out and take them on the page of the damages book if you want. Because I know people have so many notes in the damages book. It's another reason I don't want to take it off the market. I can't take yeah. books like that. Uh, one thing I love about your, you know, help and helping us expose when a defense, they call them experts, I call them paid opinion witnesses. I got that from Mitnick. I call the independent medical examiner, the independent medical examiner is the only profession in the world with three lies in the job. <laughs> but uh, it also really helps us have a villain in our trial story when there's not an obvious villain, like admitted liability or it's a 70 year old lady that just made a mistake and rear-ended somebody and there's not a lot of property damage. But you be careful to not call them the villain. Don't use words like that. I, I never use that word, but what I do is I look at what are the facts I can bring up in trial to try to get the jurors to come to that conclusion themselves. I, if, once I say it, I, I feel like there's going to be a juror that says, no, they're not. I'm going to prove you wrong. And that's why the reliability of the science thing, that's why the reliability test works so well. The jurors totally on their own come to the conclusion that person's trying to cheat me. I am here right. trying to do what I can do. And, and regardless if you like a juror or not, most of them are trying to do what through their eyes is the right thing. Yeah. And I'm trying to do what I think I'm doing the right thing by my lights. And this creep <laughs> is trying to keep me from doing it. And I'm the one with the oath. Break his own oath of you. Don't make me break mine. Yep. They get furious at that. That's why try the lie is so powerful. Try the lie is less powerful if it's just he lied to my client. It's when that lie turns its direction from the client to the jury. And once that happens, if I'm not, if I, you know, it's like somebody looking you in the eye and flat out lying. And you believe them. And later you find out they were lying. And that for many people, will be the worst violation you can do to a person. And it traces back in terms of evolution. It is one of the worst things. We live in little tribes. Everybody's dependent on each other. Little trivial lies make no difference, but anything of substance where I have to make an important decision, I don't want to be misled by anybody. And if they do mislead me, I'm going to try to get rid of them from the tribe. It's a life and death power there. The last thing I want to ask you about from the book that I think we talked a lot about before when we were planning what we're going to talk about today uh, is you write about respect. And it's a nice segue into what we were just talking about. Our strongest feelings is the wrong word. Our strongest drives are things that humanity evolved over 
a law of humanity's been evolving. Depends on when you think humanity started and when, when we became humans instead of whatever the hell we were before that. But once we started living in tribes, and this is true of animals as well, the concept of respect is a life and death issue. If I'm in a tribe and I behave in ways that people stop respecting me, I get thrown out of the tribe. And human beings back in the day, when we were evolving, back in the cave days or in the Pleistocene, uh, if you were thrown out of the tribe, you were gone. You were dead. So the only people who survived were the ones to whom respect was enormously important. And today we see, now a lot of the world today, that's irrelevant. However, the tribe is still there. and. We also see this lack of respect thing that can get you killed if you disrespect somebody in the wrong setting, like in prison or at a bar late at night when people have been drinking or in a lot of other situations. Lack of respect in the workplace, no matter what we call it, it can be sexism or ageism or harassment or, or just ignoring you or making fun, whatever. Those are all lack of respect things. And we hate it. I could do something in a group of people that would disrespect somebody in public. And that person would remember that forever. And the people who the people who watch me do it would hate me for. You can watch. You can be standing in line to get into a, a show, and there's two lines, and you see somebody cut into the other line. Somebody comes along and shoves somebody aside and cuts into the line. We hate that person. You're going to slow me down. I'm going to get there just as fast. You hate that mf. You just hate them. That's a respect issue. So now let's take one little step with that, if it is a true step. Every act of negligence is an act of disrespect to everyone that it possibly could have hurt. It's not just that it's dangerous to me physically or to my life. It is dangerous to me on a life or death. We don't consciously think of respect as life or death, but that's what it comes out of. It's as important as any other drive we have. Back in the day, and we've kept that. We haven't evolved away from it at all. So when, some, when I see somebody doing that, or if they do it to me, that's one of the worst things people can do to each other, is that lack of respect. And when you can frame the issues of your case, negligence, every act of negligence, if you think about it that way, is indeed a lack of respect. If I disrespect your safety, obviously I'm disrespecting you. You can't can't separate those two things. And that's a very down-to-earth argument that doesn't need any explanation to the germs. It's just that it's like the word freedom. Everybody knows you disrespect me, and I get really unhappy. There are exceptions. There are people who have been beaten so, so beaten down in life that respect has become a luxury. They just don't expect it anymore. But other than that, and in my book, that is still the reason Donald Trump won the White House. Absolutely. People feel a lack of respect, and there's someone finally speaking to them. When he said to the black community, vote for me, what do you got to lose? It almost worked. It came very close, except they didn't quite believe he'd treat them any differently. But the notion of disrespect, look, all the people in America who have problems of one sort or another, women's positions, the Me Too movement, uh, racial stuff, all of those things, all of those people are still living among the best lives in the history of the world. 
materially and in health and in other ways. We, we are all, except the very, very bottom, living the best lives. However, when we are on a, one of those lower echelons with respect to somebody else, we feel that disrespect. It's the disrespect that's constant. So as things rise, as they did in a place like the United States, this is still the top, that's still the middle and the bottom. But that differential, where the lower part is not respected by the upper part, is of enormous importance. The difference psychologically between being a servant in 19th century, 18th century England, where there were very strict rules of respect for your servants, was one of the biggest differences between that and slavery. Not the only difference, obviously. But one of the worst things about slavery, that not just the work people had to do, not just the it's the lack of respect for you as a human being. It is, a, it is the universal, whatever the opposite word is to panacea. And when you frame your case, and it's easy to do, shows you how, and you can probably figure it out anyway, you've got a very powerful tool working for you. I mean, just as powerful a persuasive tool as you will ever find is to try to harness the power of how much we hate disrespect. You can probably remember all the times in your life that you were disrespected on more than a trivial level and even on some trivial levels. And if you're the kind of person who looks back and chagrin at things you've done, probably some of those things have been when you've disrespected somebody and felt bad. Now, when somebody's done us really, really wrong, one of the ways we get even with them is to disrespect them. We ridicule them, we make fun of them, we attack them in public. That's the way we get it. So when we think somebody's done something very bad to us, we will try to do something that makes them shamed in public because we know that respect is our, our tool. That's great. David, thank you so much. No, my pleasure. You wind me up and I won't shut up. Thank God. We're no, up. I love it. I'm, I'm learning. I'm, uh, I'm can't wait to get the book. But in the meantime, I think, you know, I'm going to have at least one trial, hopefully between now COVID permitting between now and the time it comes out. And I'm, going to try to use some of what I learned today. Uh, everybody that wants to try cases needs to go to trial.guys.com and get this book. You, you all that have been listening for the five years, no, I don't say that very often, but this time I really mean it. And David, one last question. If I've had the joy of working with you and Artemis on some cases um, that has not only helped my development, but also really helped my clients because we got some really good recoveries. Uh, if someone wants to work with you all, what is the best way to, to get a hold of you or to learn more about what you do? Thanks for asking, because a lot of people think all Artemis and I do is write books and do research. <laughs> so about 95% of the time we're working on cases. Uh, you can email me is the easiest way to get something started. It's jurywatch, J-U-R-Y-W-A-T-C-H, jurywatch at gmail.com. Or contact Artemis, which is Artemis, A-R-T-E-M-I-S, Artemis, at consult M-M-B. Mother, mother basketball, consultmmb.com, Artemis at consultmmb.com. And that's the quickest way because Artemis is traveling a lot. And uh, I check my email very often so we can get back to you fairly quickly to either, you know, spend a half hour on a case with you or spend, uh, you know, half a year on a case with you or anything in between. That's what we do and that's where we learn all our stuff. And it is so fun to go up there and spend a day brainstorming a case with y'all. I mean, it's, we're doing most of that now by Zoom for obvious yeah. reasons. And that's even better because we spend half the day, then you go home and do a bunch of stuff 
and then you come back so we can refine what we talked about the first half of the day. It really is. It's really a good day. And although the focus group stuff can get depressing sometimes because you find out all the things you need to overcome in your case, it's, it's incredibly valuable. And Better I've enjoyed be before trial and preparation and after trial and retrospect. I agree. And I have to remind myself of that. It's, it's not fun, but it, it's important. Um, and so thank you for taking the time here. I look forward to the next time we get to work together and to the next time I see you. Thank you. And I love that you do these things, not just with me, but with anybody. These things are such valuable, valuable things for the profession. They didn't exist a decade or two ago. So thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, David. Have a great day. You all take care. Stay safe, stay healthy. And these days, stay warm. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan. It is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.